Our second reading is taken from 1 John, chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Thank you very much, Joan. It's a short reading. Um, and I think it gives me confidence to say if you want to hunt that out in the Bibles, in the pews, that would be good because um, I want to actually gently refer to other bits of 1 John. There is a, a benefit with the Bibles in the pews if we can actually have them open, I think. Um, I know we have multiple devices for reading scripture today, phones and otherwise. But uh, on the page, it is a help, and uh, it will certainly help me to have you there. One, two, two, five in the Church Bibles, very near the end of the New Testament. Let me pray with those words uh, in front of us. We thank you for the encouragement of singing that hymn a moment ago about your excellent word, Heavenly Father. We thank you for the blessing of knowing you personally because you're a God who's spoken. We pray that you would speak afresh to us as we handle these old, old words. May they be a a word that is living and active from you at work in us today by your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Suppose I was to tell you something, let's try this on you and see what you think. If I was to tell you that I am personally acquainted with King Charles, I wonder how you react to that. Now I suppose you might be impressed by the claim, or you might be sceptical, but you can probably carry on life without worrying too much about it. Let me suppose... We change the question a bit. How, how are we supposed to react if somebody says to us, I know God? Not, I know King Charles III, but I know God. Um, you could say that sounds like taking the name dropping to a, an extra level, doesn't it? Many would think it's either supremely arrogant to talk that way, or maybe a sign that you're delusional out of your mind in some way. But it is the claim that Christians make, isn't it? That we know God personally. In fact, Jesus even defined eternal life in those terms. This is from a a time when he was praying to his Father in heaven the night before he died. He said this, This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. John 17, verse 3. So, He clearly thought that was a realistic claim and much to be desired for all of us. Now it raises the question, 
How can anyone be sure that the knowledge of God is actually theirs? And that question, I want to convince you, was hugely important as an issue for the church to whom John was writing this little letter that we're looking at uh, for the next month or so. I think we come back to it in the summer as well. We're taking our time on it, just a, a couple of verses today. But it was a hugely important issue for John as he wrote to the church in his day. This is one of the very last letters that we're looking at that was written in our New Testament, say 60 or so years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's written as the first generation of Christians who had direct links to Jesus, as that generation were dying out. And in that situation, at that time, a bunch of false teachers called the Gnostics were active in the church. Soon, there'd be no more apostles. Uh, John was probably the last one standing. So the question then becomes, would the church stay apostolic? Would it be true to the apostles' message without them? Or would these Gnostics bring a new message for a new century? Now, forgive me if you've never heard that word Gnostic before. We know about agnostics, perhaps, people who don't know if there's a God or not. The Gnostics were the opposite of that. They were 100% sure about that matter. They knew God, and they were certain of it. They had a hotline to heaven. But the kind of knowledge of God they claimed to have was different from what John and the apostles had brought people. John spoke about a God, you might remember this from the very start of the series, if you were here uh, in January when we started off. John spoke about a God they had seen and heard and handled in the three years they'd spent with Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. For the Gnostics, it was much more personal and subjective. The God they knew was the God of their hearts, their inner experience, not particularly tied to the historical figure of Jesus Christ. And you put those two authority claims about knowing God together in the same place at the same time, the result was confusion. How do we tell who knows God and who doesn't? Everybody's wondering. More important still, how can we be sure whether we ourselves know God or not? People must have been asking that question. Clearly, somebody's being deceived. (gasps) Maybe it's us. Who knows? Now, in an ever-changing world today, where our links to the New Testament are under threat all the time, I think you can see the relevance of this little letter, therefore. There are plenty of voices today, some apparently within the church, even leaders in the church, who say, we know God, and we're bringing a fresh message for today. Then there are others who disagree. God speaks today, they might say. Yeah, that's true. But he speaks today through what he spoke in the Bible. Put those two claims about the knowledge of God alongside each other, and there's confusion. Of course there is. So we need to know that sort of background, I think, as we read this letter of 1 John. There's a principle, actually, which is important whenever we read anything. It governs what the meaning is 
and isn't of any written matter. It's not up to me when I read something as the reader to decide what it means. The author's intention is what matters if we're to interpret what is written accurately. So this is quite a rarefied point, but I hope you'll bear with me. It's, it's pretty important. How you read any written material is affected not just by what's going on in me, but by what was going on in the head of the person that wrote that written material originally. We don't import the meaning from our day particularly. C.S. Lewis is well known to people as a, a, a scholar of ancient and uh, not-so-ancient literature. He wrote an introduction to um, the poem by Milton uh, from the, I'm going to say, 17th century. This is a dangerous game to play. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Paradise Lost, which, um, of course, it's different from the Bible's literature. Uh, But he's making a point about written works and how we understand them. This is what he said. The first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it was intended to do and how it is meant to be used. So it even applies beyond written matter, but apply it to any written material, and I think you'll agree with that. What the writer intended must dictate what the reader understands. And, of course, we do all this automatically. You don't read a parking ticket the same way you would read a love letter, do you? We've got to ask, what purpose lay behind the writing of this document or any document? And you ask that as you come to the Bible in 1 John or the other letters in the New Testament. Always useful, probably at the start of a letter, at the end of the letter, you get a little hint as to why this letter was written to that congregation at the time or when Jesus is preaching a parable. If you top and tail a parable in a Bible study group and see what gave rise to it and how people reacted. You get a sense of what Jesus was trying to achieve as he told those amazing stories. Um, Therefore, why is this letter written? What's the situation it's dealing with that John had in mind becomes important? Now, at various points in this letter, John lets us know why he's writing. Uh, Most notably, I think, as I said, topping and tailing is useful in chapter 5, verse 13, near the end of the letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. That tells you why he's writing. He is reassuring them that they have got a genuine knowledge of God. And the purpose of the letter is to give them all sorts of tests in behavior and belief which can help them know for sure And in our verses today, just these two or three verses that Joan read for us, we get a similar mantra of why John has written the letter. This is a little clue to help us get the whole letter clearer in what he was after. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'll read on in a moment, but let me pause there, because you probably noticed that there was a deliberate element of repetition in the next verse. This verse straddles the bottom of the page in our Bibles. Verse 14. So this 
repetition item means you can almost play spot the difference if you like, if you like that game section in the weekend newspaper. Here's verse 14, spot the difference with what we've just heard. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, over the page, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. What you've got in that tiny little reading is two lots of three in each half, two triplets. People have been tempted to say that the groups he's addressing are referring to three different stages of spiritual maturity. But I'm not convinced of that because he addresses all his readers as dear children multiple times in the letter. You get the point. He's a very old man. This is his way of commonly referring and speaking to all his readers. Like if you want a little... Cross-reference is easy to see on the page. Last verse of the letter, 1 John 5.21. Dear children, he says there, uh, keep yourselves from idols. That is addressed to dear children there, and it's addressed to the whole church, isn't it? False gods aren't a danger only for baby Christians, but for all Christians. Children is his label for all believers because when we become Christians, we are adopted into God's family. We become brothers and sisters with each other, children together in God's supernatural family. That's why the blessing that he mentions in our little triplets for all children of God, the blessing is universal on each time, something all Christians have in common. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Every Christian can know that. We have the slate wiped clean in Jesus' name and only in Jesus' name, since Jesus was the only one who died on the cross to achieve that forgiveness. He took the punishment we all deserve for our sin simply because he loves us. Then another universal blessing, verse 14, the matching line again. I write to you, dear children, Because you know the Father. That is, again, a universal blessing for every child of God. My sins are forgiven, and that's not just cold, hard, legal talk. Once forgiven, I am accepted. I know the Father personally. That's something every genuine Christian has in common. Our sins are forgiven, and we know the Father What about the other two groups that are listed here? Well, here, I do think that the idea of spiritual maturity probably makes some sense. I write to you fathers, he says, because you know him who is from the beginning. Remember that as an old man, he's writing to some Christians, and some of them have been around for a while. Remember, too, just as a footnote, that in Greek and Latin, when you use the masculine for a group of people, or in French, I suppose... It normally includes men and women. Well, he's writing to older Christians who needed to know that even if they were ancient or spiritually ancient, they knew the ageless one. They're already stepping through the door into eternity because they know the eternal God. So that's the older generation. Then there are the younger generations spiritually. I'm writing to you, young men, 
young women, because you have overcome the evil one. And when the next triplet repeats that as a development, uh, when he mentions in the next time through in verse 14, over the page, isn't it? I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So these people may be younger, younger in years, maybe younger in spiritual uh, maturity, but they've come to faith, so their thin- sins are forgiven, they're children of God in, in God's family, that's true, but they don't yet have the miles on the clock that others do. They're young spiritually. Even so, they've got spiritual life. In the youngest Christian, there is already, by virtue of the fact that they're converted, supernatural activity that's happened. They aren't the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. And they're on the winning side, he says. In fact, they have already overcome the evil one, past tense, because they belong to Jesus, the victor. They're strong, even if by virtue of being younger spiritually, you might think of them as weaker. They're strong, and the Bible isn't simply truths on a page out there. It's not just letters that you read and you assimilate, but it actually lives in you. That's how they're described here. A power on the inside, living in them. A book like no other book, because this book, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is alive, transforming us in ways that we couldn't possibly imagine. Well, so much, I think, for what the verses roughly mean. Just a couple of verses. Um, You might not have expected me to take quite so long to explain them to you. I'm now going to take longer just to try and unpack them a bit, if I'm allowed to do that. What is their significance for us today? Let me wrap up with a couple of bullet points, which I hope will help. The fundamental division and the family unity or the family units. The fundamental division to start with. One of the effects of this new teaching in John's day was that it introduced what we could call a two-tier Christianity. There was a a supercharged elite who had the top-up of knowledge from the special teachers. And then there were the also-ran Christians. Normal Christians who were second-class citizens, really, Then you've got a third grouping in the human race, the unconverted. So you've got three groupings in the human race. Non-Christians, Christians, Christians, and the top-notch bracket of uh, super-keen Christians, those who are in the know, uh, helped by the Gnostics. What these verses and the letter as a whole does is to assert that there's actually fundamentally only one dividing line running through the human race, those who belong to Christ and those who don't. And so, woe betide us if we introduce any other kind of divide. There's no such thing as a first-class or a second-class Christian. What this means, try and unpack the sort of entailments of it, never allow anything to make you undervalue, in the language of 1 John 2, the experience of having your sins forgiven or of knowing God personally. Those blessings he says belong to all the children of God. 
or of, we can add to them for the, the other ones, uh, sensing a power in this book's teaching. If those experiences are yours, if that's happened to you, then you've crossed over from death to life, this fundamental divide. You've crossed it. And we can undervalue those things very, very easily. If you lose the category of sin from your thinking, if God is basically affirming everyone, whatever they think, whatever they do, however they live, what that probably means is if we're basically affirming ourselves and our choices, if we lose the category of sin, of right and wrong, then inevitably forgiveness of sin will be undervalued. Of course it will. Of course God forgives my sin. That's his job. Whereas that should be the jewel in the crown. How amazing that God forgives me, who for the sins of today deserves nothing but judgment at his hand. I can't possibly pay for my sins myself, but amazingly, he has Hallelujah. So never lose, will you, a sense of the wonder of being on that side, God's side of that fundamental divide. And why do you think he repeats these verses? Because if you're a Christian, you mustn't ever lose the sense of wonder of being on God's side of that fundamental divide. I think there's a church in Florida which has as its mission statement, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, which is quite a good mission statement, um, except, of course, the main thing really is to know exactly what the main thing is if you're going to be able to keep it as the main thing. I'm telling you, the main thing is the gospel. If you don't know that your sins are forgiven, if you don't know yet, you're not sure that you're in a relationship with God, well, that's the main thing for you to become sure of, for sure. But we all need to retain this sense of the fundamental divide in the human race being, are my sins forgiven? Do I know God or not? And not to fall victim to the idea of an inside track spiritually, which some people have, which is not available to others um, as an also-ran Christian. So not three tiers. No two-tier Christianity with a, a special elite who are in the know and then the also-rans, and then non-Christians. Remember the fundamental divide. Are your sins forgiven? Do you know God as Father? That is um, quite dense stuff, and it's worth unpacking at some stage how we get that fundamental division wrong in our thinking. I just leave that with you to take it further in your own time. Second bullet point is even further from 1 John chapter 2, and it's this one, the family unity. Because John is surely making that point by mentioning all ages and stages of Christian experience. He's saying, look, I'm writing to anybody and everybody in the church. My letter's for all of you, young or old, experienced or inexperienced. Unlike the Gnostics, he's implying, I love all of you. Whatever your level of Christian experience, I'm concerned for you all. There's no sort of special hierarchy of spiritual grace. I affirm you all as brothers and sisters in Christ, my dear children, he's saying as he writes. 
Now, that's the kind of love which marks up those who have a true fellowship with God, as opposed to the super-spiritual types who easily hive off on their own because nobody else is quite good enough for them. We're a family. God's family is what he's saying. And I don't tire of saying that we want to be the best family church we can be at all saints. Not best in the sense of competing with other churches, but family in the best sense of the word. All ages and stages growing in their relationship with God. And I realize that um, at 11 o'clock we're a slightly older age range congregation. But it, it still means that we need to be aware of how as a church in toto... We care particularly for families with school-aged children because it's hard for us to keep doing that in Christian communities and how we provide a community for each other. In our world of virtual reality headsets and online relationships, we've got to have real face-to-face community and make that happen. There's tons I could say about this. I uh, spoke at great length about the different things that are happening um, in church life I've even I've, I have got have you got a couple of photos of the Pathfinder social this will this will save a, a, a moment or just flesh it out for you this happened um, 10 days ago in the rectory here you see um, Eva and Rosie making cookies we had a junior bake off next one has actually got I think uh, another bunch of people and the rector And then after that, you even get a coronation cookie in the next picture. This one, top right, I'm I'm backing to be the coronation cookie for um, May 2023, when King Charles III, that personal friend of mine, is um, is crowned. Okay, red, white, and blue there. Um, Sorry, this is completely irrelevant. Thank you for putting them on. Um, Nothing particularly exciting about the photos, but I think it's eloquent... Um, about the need for what we loosely call socials in our church life, where the Bible isn't necessarily opened at all, but the Bible teaching is lived out in community as hopefully meaningful relationships are formed between the young people and each other and between the pathfinders and their leader. That's actually happening pretty well with the 11 to 14-year-olds, I think. It's harder at the moment for the next age bracket up, our TNG group. The point is this, if we're to help our young people, and they certainly need our help, we've got to be a good, welcoming, real-life community Um, here in our church family. And everybody's got a part to play in this. That's why I'm not embarrassed to preach this as part of the application and service at a church where we don't, uh, a congregation where we don't have so many young people involved. Um... Everybody's got a part to play. Parents do, leaders do, prayers do, people that pray about the work, who amble up to the parents that that you know and ask, how is so-and-so getting on? Our kids need healthy, real-life relationships with peers and with others in the Christian family. That's why I keep asking people to help out at ASK. That's uh, our shorthand for All Saints Kids, Pathfinders, TNG. I keep asking people to cook a Sunday evening meal or to pray for the Pathfinder, TNG weekend away, or um, 
whatever else it might be, offer, offer lifts, bake cakes. The list goes on and on. Any offers gratefully received. It saves me coming to chase you and tap you on the shoulder, okay? We need new leaders, it occurs to me to say, um, in the kids' work, and don't write yourself out of the script, okay? If you're willing to offer uh, a Sunday a term, that would be a help. The first step of that, of course, is to do the online safeguarding training that gets you in the process of being approved to do that. But if it's a priority, then let's be willing to make it a priority and do that, that, that course and get qualified so that we can help out and take some of the heat off the regular teams. The point of the pancake party, I don't know what pancake day is all about, the point of the pancake party is not really to use up our eggs and milk before Lent and when we start fasting. In my mind, the point of the church pancake party that we're having is real-life intergenerational community. Okay? Um, sorry, there was even another half a page of stuff that I said to the thing when I had all the parents and, and uh, children absolutely before my eyes, eyeball to eyeball. We have a vision statement in church life. I meant to mention that, and I didn't, so I'm going to say it to you instead. The vision statement in church life was that we are to be two things, reaching out and growing together. Because of that fundamental divide where without Christ we're not forgiven, our sins are not forgiven, we do not know the Father, we're not children of God. Without that fundamental divide clear... We will, we will easily retreat from reaching out to others, won't we? We have a wonderful message to offer. Your sins can be forgiven. You can know God personally. You can be children of a heavenly Father and in a community together. So reaching out with that message must be a priority for us. Not just being turned in on ourselves. But we grow together as well. We grow up in the family of God uh, from being young Christians to older Christians who keep going hand in hand with the ageless one who inhabits eternity. Reaching out and growing together are twin goals of the church. And the main thing, therefore, is to keep the main thing, uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the main thing. Let's pray together that we'd be given his grace to do that. We pray, Heavenly Father, with uh, a longing that your word would be alive amongst us, living and active, making us into the family you would have us be. And we pray for a sense of the real joy for what you have already done, in cleansing us from our sin, in giving us victory over the devil and evil in the spiritual battle that rages, in giving us a, a, a warm relationship with you personally. Help us to value and rejoice in those wonderful blessings and to hold them out to others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you, Simon. We're going to sing again now, and we're going to sing, I think, about the main thing. Uh, So if you're able, would you like to stand and let's sing about Jesus, the name high over all. sit down. Uh, We have come to the end of the formal part of our time 
uh, of worship and fellowship together. Uh, but there is still time to uh, hang around a little bit, stay around, uh, have some coffee, which we brought to you, uh, and greet somebody you don't know. Let me end with a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, uh, and ever shall be, world without end. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ, amen.